Hello, and welcome to another episode of the PE Hub podcast. This is Chris Wachowski. And this is Sam Sutton. And uh, it, is an, it is early spring here in New York, even though uh, it, may, it looks a little bit like London with the fog and the rain and the 50-degree 50, 50 weather outside. And the passive aggression. <laughs> <laughs> Use of passive voice. The, the humor that uh, goes over my head occasionally. Yeah, exactly. Um, before we get started, we're going to talk today a bit about uh, a uh, board battle at Kelpers, uh, long, longer hold periods, and uh, fintech investing. But before we get started, I wanted to uh, pay some bills and tell you about some upcoming events we have. So we have our Emerging Manager Connect event coming up May 1st in San Francisco at the Marines Memorial Club. Um, several interesting keynote speakers there, uh, including Bob Maynard, the CIO of uh, Idaho Public Employees Pension. Uh, then we have our Family Office Connect event May 31st at the Harvard Club here in New York. And uh, at that event, you can catch uh, Suna Saeed, founder and CEO of NEMA, NEMA Group. And then finally, uh, in June, June 26th and 27th, we have our annual Partner Connect Midwest in Chicago. And there's a whole lineup of keynoters there, one of whom is Sean Cunningham, uh, Managing Director at GTCR. So uh, got a got a nice lineup for you coming up over the next couple months if you're looking for some events to network and uh, get some get some uh, mini cakes and lunch. Yeah, if, you, if you're a big fan of talking to strangers, no natural light, and um, you know spending your entire day cooped up in a very nice hotel. There are nice hotels. Then Partner Connect events is really the event for you. You, you might even get stuck an extra day at the hotel like, like many of us did in Boston uh, during the blizzard. <laughs> yes. No, I, I ducked out a day before there. So I got to work from home for a couple days. It was wonderful. So let's, let's transition from there. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, so to start with, uh, Sam... Let's talk about your recent coverage of some tensions among board members at, uh, at Kelpers uh, involving something, somehow involving a copier. Yeah, so um, this does relate to private equity, but uh, basically a few months back, Kelpers had a board election, and one of the new members of the board who was elected was a woman named Margaret Brown. Margaret Brown is a... Um, she's been an employee of a number of school districts over the years. Um, she defeated a heavily favored incumbent who was backed by a lot of public employees named unions. Uh, his name was Michael Bilbray. Um, and she came in basically to fill the void left by J.J. Jelensic. She was, she's been hypercritical of the private equity program. She's been hypercritical of CalPERS for its um, alleged lack of transparency relating to his investments. And she's been, um, one source called her basically a, a bull in the china shop. Um, kind of like JJ. Kind of like JJ, yeah. Um, but it's been a pretty rocky few months for her since she got there. Um, can, can we stop for a second? Yeah. So these CalPERS board members are all actually elected by the general public? Some, some of them are. Some of them uh. are uh, elected by the general public. Some of them are elected officials themselves. So uh, uh, the treasurer is on the board. Um, the comptroller, state comptroller is on the board. Usually they don't actually sit on, on the meetings. They have uh, a proxy do that for them. And then um, some of them are uh, appointed by the governor. Okay. So it's, it's kind of a nice mix. But uh, Margaret Brown won one of the at-large seats. So she won her own seat there. 
Um, so Margaret gets elected and um, promptly starts to run into some difficulties. One of the first things that she asked for is um, information about the private equity program. Now, if you've been reading PE Hub for the last year or so, um, you'll know that uh, about a year ago, uh, actually Bloomberg broke this story and then we've kind of been kind of following up on it ever since, uh, CalPERS has started talking to third parties about managing its private equity program moving forward. Basically, um, handing over the authority to a BlackRock or a Hamilton Lane or an Alpha Invest to make new investments for them uh, on a go-forward basis. Um, and all of those conversations that have related to that proposal have taken place in closed session. Mm-hmm. So um, as a reporter, I, I don't have a great deal of insight into sort of where how far along they are in that process or if that's even still a process. Um, the only people who really have are, are privy to that are uh, the board members themselves and, and of course, uh, CalPERS investment staff. So Margaret Brown has been super critical of this proposal since the news broke of it last year. She doesn't like the idea of outsourcing PE. She does not. Um, okay. And I don't, think I'm, I don't think I'm putting words in her mouth. I think at this point she might have softened her tone on it a little bit, saying that she wants to learn more about it and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, going back to last year, she's basically, and she said this to me on the record, um, you know, she doesn't see the logic in hiring an outside firm and then having that firm make those investments that they're already making. It's basically just adding another layer of fees and uh, and, trans- and lack of transparency into the program. And it, and it takes power away from the CalPERS board as well. Yeah. So, well, you, and you think about like, uh, d- just, you think about the Canadian pensions and some f- some thought processes here in the U.S. of sort of building out the in-house teams so yeah. that you can actually, you know, potentially take even more control of, the, of this investment process and maybe go direct into yeah. companies. And that's something that JJ has advocated quite a bit when he was on the board. So anyway, she's kind of in the same school as thought as JJ. Um, but one of the first things that she did when she got elected to the board, she wanted to know what had happened in those closed sessions. So that way she could get up to speed on um, on the proposal and what, what sorts of questions she should be asking, what she should be researching. And um, the CalPERS board president, uh, who was also, um, she's a long-tenured member of the board. Her name's uh, Priya Mather, but she was just elected president of the board this year. Um, Priya Mather basically put her, made her jump through a, a bunch of hoops to get these transcripts. Now, in the past, board members, if they asked for closed session materials or confidential materials, that would just get sent to them electronically. And uh, JJ has said to me that that was a fairly easy process when he was on the board. Other, uh, other sources with direct knowledge of that sort of thing have said that that was a, a fairly easy process. Um, Priya, in order for Margaret to see those transcripts, Priya made it so that she had to uh, come to CalPERS offices in Sacramento and sit down in a room with just hard copies of the transcripts. She couldn't take photographs of them. She couldn't electronically copy them. You know, there were kind of a lot of layers there that kind of made it seem as though Priya and CalPERS staff didn't want Margaret to have access to this information. Mm -hmm. Um, or wanted to watch her. Or wanted to watch her. Yeah, exactly. And I don't, and that's something that Margaret has accused them of and has been very loud in accusing them of. And I don't feel as though there's, it's not as though there's nothing to that. I mean, Priya, if you read my story, Priya even admitted to me, and I have the direct quote here. Um, uh, let me see here. Uh, 
pull it up here. She basically said um, that uh, when I came up, well, when I came in as board president, one of the first things I did was review existing practices and to ensure they best protected CalPERS and its members. Mathers told buyouts, um, adding that she believed electronic distribution of closed session materials could lead to the release of confidential information. That's all well and good. Margaret's the only one who's been asking for some of these things, so it might seem unfair to her, but I'm trying to execute my role as effectively and prudently as I can. So it's clear, I think, from that quote that this was, while she may have been taking a lot of, you know, putting a lot of thought into how CalPERS can, you know, keep its material confidential, it's also clear that Margaret's the only one who was really affected by any of this, by any of her new policies. Mm -hmm. So... Margaret gets very upset about this. There's also like a question of there were redactions in the transcripts that weren't supposed to be there. It really made it seem as though they were trying to hide stuff from her. But then it gets tricky. I think Margaret had a pretty straightforward case at that point. But then it gets tricky. Um, the day, same day she was supposed to, uh, or that she was going to review those transcripts, Margaret brought a friend of hers to the CalPERS offices, a woman named uh, Cecile Nunley. Um, she had lunch with Cecile and then afterward took her into the board's chambers and the offices behind those chambers to um, basically print some receipts, take care of some like menial tasks, and then go from there. She left Cecile Nunley unattended in the CalPERS board's offices, and Cecile, who is a um, uh, politically active person, used that time to use the CalPERS scanner to scan uh, women, it was the Women Democratic Society of Sacramento, I believe, Women Democrats of Sacramento County uh, fundraising documents. Okay. So now she's, this woman's using, this woman who is not a board member or a CalPERS staffer is using CalPERS resources to distribute political fundraising material. So, um, so someone sees her doing this. She uh, gets, there's nothing that immediately happens, but then, you know, like a day later or later that day, Priya emails Margaret saying, I need you to send me everything that that woman sent from the scanner. Margaret sends her the fundraising materials. Priya and CalPERS claim that there was more scanned. It's unclear whether there was or not. Margaret says it was just like a blank scan. I think anyone who has experience with an office scanner knows that sometimes if you're trying to scan something, one gets sent off and then it has nothing in it. It's like a blank attachment. Yeah. Um, but at that point, Priya decides to censure, privately censure Margaret and bar her from use of the CalPERS offices for uh, two months or severely, strictly limit her use of the CalPERS offices for two months. Margaret takes this as, a, uh, as an affront, as an insult, and uh, it becomes, and starts bringing it up in open session and sending out uh, announcements to members of the press like myself, members of Sacramento B, uh, Adam Ashton over there. Um, and it becomes this huge situation. Um, where it stands now is she is still censured. She's still having a lot of difficulty accessing the CalPERS board offices. And it's clear that she probably did something I don't know if I would be characterize it as something wrong, but it's clear that she kind of showed difficult judgment, not great judgment in bringing someone who was not allowed, according to just Priya's rules, and it's unclear if Priya can make these rules, but uh, brought someone into the CalPERS board offices that she wasn't supposed to, and then let that person use the, the scanner. 
At the same time, there are a lot of questions about whether or not Priya even has the right to make these rules and whether these rules are unfairly targeting a um, unpopular board member. And by unpopular, I mean unpopular on the board. Mm. She, she won her election, but she's not the most beloved person on the board. Um, and it's, you know, if this is kind of political retribution, basically. Yeah, what's interesting is that it, it was <clears throat> Priya's policies that created this entire situation in the first place. Priya's policies created this entire situation in the first place. They seem to have been implemented, f- I don't want to say on an ad hoc, they weren't like ad hoc necessarily, but they were done by just her authority. It wasn't like the board, you know, changed its governance policies to not allow people behind, you know, into the CalPERS offices to... Um, only uh, allow uh, the observance of closed session materials in person. This was done kind of by her fiat, I guess. Did everybody was that communicated to all the board members? So the in terms of not letting people into the back office, yeah, that was communicated to board members. Um, in terms of the confidential material, again, going back to Priya's quote. The only person that applied to really was Margaret because she was the only one asking for these things. Mm-hmm. So um, apparently it's going to get discussed in a government's governance committee meeting next month. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there's but there's a lot here that just kind of it, it was all of this is just much ado about nothing. But I think it's uh, interesting from a private equity standpoint because at the heart of it was a board member who was super critical or has been super critical of the private equity program and of private equity's proposals. Uh, seems to be having a very hard time or has had a very hard time getting access to the information that she needs to be a fiduciary and help CalPERS make the decisions about its private equity program moving forward. Yeah, like t- to me, and you know, as a, as a reporter, I'm and always... And by the way, it. I think every side of the story hated my story. That's my, <laughs> that's my understanding of it. I don't it's think... It's it, always a good sign. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people liked it. Um, um, so, you know, as a reporter, I'm always on the side of more transparency. Yeah. And so, like, it, it seems to me, like, wh- why wouldn't a new board member just get total access to transcripts from past meetings? I mean, is it sh- should it really be that hard to do? That's, yeah, I, I think I would agree with you there. And CalPERS press people and Priya have, you know, in conversations with me and in conversations with other members of the press said, like, oh, of course she has these rights. Of course she's able to do this. But California's a pretty big state, and members of the board are from all over the state. Making someone come to s- fly to Sacramento to look at c- closed session or confidential materials that until recently were distributed electronically and easily seems like a really shitty idea. <laughs> like, that's just a really dumb idea. And, um, and then on, on top of that, you, you're saying that there were redactions in the transcript? So there were, yeah, there were redactions in the transcript. The CalPERS staff and everybody I've talked to at CalPERS has said that should not have happened. That was a mistake. Oh, they admitted it was they, a mistake. They uh-huh. coped to that being a mistake right away. Um, it's unclear, though, whether they ever told Margaret that it was a mistake. <laughs> and it's unclear if Margaret, if... The, well, what's clear is that they definitely reached out to Margaret. It's unclear if Margaret took the opportunity to try to clear the situation up internally. Um, one source of mine who was describing all of this to me anonymously was like, there are no saints in this situation. It seems like uh, members of the CalPERS board, our pre-mather was kind of jumping a little ahead of, or getting a little over ahead of, ahead of her skis. In, in making these rules, 
and it's clear that Margaret Brown is trying to maximize her martyrdom here, um, or her martyr complex here. Um, so th- there's a lot going on, mm-hmm. basically. You know, uh, this could all be solved, and, and we've been arguing this for, for years now. This could all be solved if they just took this stuff out of closed session and talked about it like it should be talked about in public. Like, if they're making a strategic investment decision to outsource their private equity program, everybody should know about that. We should all hear that discussion. You know, residents in California, the beneficiaries should understand the rationale behind this. It should all be discussed in public. Absolutely. I I have no idea why they close this stuff, you know, behind the veil. I think that they are super sensitive about it. I think that they don't, and they don't, they honestly just don't do a good job of explaining that. (laughs) CalPERS is simultaneously one of the most transparent organizations that I cover and one of the least transparent organizations that I cover. They release more information about their private equity program than almost any other institution that I cover. At the same time, if you ask them specific questions about individual investments, about the terms of those investments, they behave as if you are asking them about state secrets that will completely undermine their ability to do their job. (laughs) When it's very clear, that is not the case. New Jersey runs a very successful private equity program. They put the terms of each of their funds out there for the public to digest, and it seems to have worked out fine for them. Pennsylvania, um, the Public School Employees Retirement System, they aren't as transparent as they used used to be, but they still publish the fund presentations or the staff recommendation memos and consultant memos that go into the review of each of their investments. Hasn't seemed to hurt them a great deal. Right. Um, This is, CalPERS is clearly struggling with an identity crisis here. And um, I think, I think that they're struggling with an identity crisis here. And it's, uh, it's affected their ability to properly communicate why private equity is important for them, for their program and uh, why they'll need it um, as they continue to try to kind of build up their funding, their and funded then, status. And, and, and because of that, they end up with situations like this, you know, which, which sort of spiral into this almost like absurd territory. Which are stupid. <laughs> this, this, let, me, let me be clear. This story that I wrote, I spent three weeks reporting this story out, and there was some interruption there because I got a concussion. But... <laughs> <laughs> um, I was not concussed when I wrote this story, though. I will did, be very Did somebody clear. from CalPERS d- concuss you? Unless someone <laughs> tripped me at that roller rink. No, no one from CalPERS concussed me. Um, the, this is a stupid story. This is a very, wow. very stupid story. Um, the, the, the story was very interesting. The story the, is interesting. The whole situation, the whole is, situation is stupid. <laughs> it's like a Coen Brothers movie that no one would ever pay to see. So... Um, yeah, and it's easy, I, I will say too, it's easy for us to sit here and say that. That's true. It's easy for us to sit here and, and make fun of it. Um, we're not the ones who have to deal with, you know, CalPERS has been kind of a leaky ship recently. So there are reasons why uh, Priya might want to emphasize cracking down on distributing confidential or closed session material. That's a great point. I mean, we we know that they have been very sensitive about leaks. They're extremely sensitive about leaks. You know, and I'm sure that's where Priya was was going with that. Positive. And so, like, it's easy for us to sit here as people who encourage leaking (laughs) to to kind of rip her for that decision. But, you know, there's there's a clear, it clearly makes sense that is, if that's something that she's prioritizing, that that would be how she would come to the conclusion she came to. It just is also clear that that conclusion 
seems to have made things much more complicated for her and for other members of the board, including members of the board who um, might not be big fans of her. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. I also thought it was interesting. I, this wasn't in the story, but I think it bears mentioning. You know, uh, Margaret got censured for allowing a friend to scan fundraising documents. By all accounts, Margaret did not know that was what her friend was scanning. Since I've talked to Cecile Nunley. She said she didn't know. She just happened to have the documents that she needed and scanned them while she was there. Um, it, she was not involved in the in the uh, Women Democrats of Sacramento County. She's not, you know, this was not Margaret's thing. Priya Mather has gotten in a lot of trouble over the years for failing to failing to file her campaign finance disclosures in a timely manner. And she's been th- fined thousands of dollars mm. for this by um, uh, the states. I'm going to butcher this. I think it's like the Fair Political Practices Commission yeah. or something along. It's something along those lines. Okay. So take that with a grain. Um, and so for her to crack down on this so hard for what was really just a, you know, a scan, it wasn't even a use of ink, it's a little bit, it's a little much. It's a little much. I feel like all of this could have been resolved with it. Hey, you shouldn't have people back here, and please don't uh, use the scanner. Yeah. Not, that, not, that said, if I had found out that you know the office scanner was being used for political fundraising, I would have written that up too. So n- not not hey, we're restricting your access to the very office that that we're pointing you to to look at these documents in the first place. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's just bizarre and. Um, and yeah, I'm sure that, you know, as I said, I, I know that everybody involved or a lot of the people involved with this story did not like the way it was covered. But, um, you know, maybe if you sit down and talk to the people that you have to work with instead of, you know, making a show of it, you won't get unfavorable coverage like this. Yeah. So anyway, that's what's happening in CalPERS. All right. Well, uh, we are going to take a quick break. And we'll come back and hear from Louisa on the world of fintech investing. Welcome back. Uh, Next, we're going to talk to Louisa about a feature that is running today. It's also the cover of the new uh, issue of Buyouts magazine. And it discusses uh, cybersecurity. Uh, Louisa, tell us what what you were reporting on. Hi, everybody. So anyways, I'm back. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very sunny welcome. So anyways, I've been hearing from a lot of my sources, and mind you, I cover fintech, Mm -hmm. that a lot of the deals now in fintech have to deal with cybersecurity. Okay. So that has to do with data breaches and who hasn't been hacked. Mm -hmm. So I think I just got hacked my my app that details how how many calories I eat each day and how much my weight, which is really embarrassing, Mm -hmm. just got hacked. I got hacked? How do you know? Because I got a message telling me I got hacked, and I was really annoyed. <laughs> and I deleted the app, and, you know, that hurt me more than I think Yahoo. Oh, really? Or, or Equifax. <laughs> that really got me upset. But anyways, back to the story. That, that's vital information. Somebody, <laughs> yeah, somebody could blackmail can, that with you. <laughs> they totally can use that against you. Um, yeah, no, that's absolutely, It's. it's t- I imagine it's terrifying, and I imagine that's a big reason why a lot of firms are... Um, focusing so heavily on this now as a you know as they look at investment targets right because you know personal data is being hacked every day and mm-hmm. so and they used to I was talking to this one um, executive 
from GTCR, and he told me that you, you used to be able to put a perimeter around the data. Mm -hmm. But now, because personal data is everywhere, and there's hackers coming around all the time, mm -hmm. that, you know, companies are just getting breached. Mm -hmm. and so, which is good business for private equity and yeah. the companies they invest in. Are there... Uh, are there specific firms that are looking at cybersecurity, or are there yeah, only like sort of a, 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 a handful of firms that are looking at that? There's a bunch of firms that are looking at it. They are. That have been investing for a while, and they continue to invest. And so, you know, we, we have a lot of um, publicity around, like, other sectors like blockchain and cryptocurrency, mm -hmm. but I'm hearing that it's cybersecurity is where the big money at, is at right now. And um, obviously, PE doesn't invest in startups, and so ci there's cybersecurity assets out there that are mature. Very right? mature. Okay, been around for a while. Very mature. Is any of this regulatory driven? So I know just covering PE specifically that the SEC has made a big push toward making sure uh, financial advisors are securing their data properly, or if they can't ensure that they're securing their data properly, making sure that there's kind of plans in place should there be a breach, should there be a hack? Has that driven any of the deal activity that you're seeing? Well, that's one of the more booming sectors, which is compliance, mm -hmm. and so which is part of the cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm hearing that that's actually one of the bigger sectors right now where people are seeing, you know, a lot of investments. Got it. Any major deals that you've covered recently that kind of hit on that specifically or...? Um, well, there was a deal last year mm -hmm. where Francisco Partners sold... Oh, is it Paymetric? I think that's what it is. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they sold it to Vista. Mm -hmm. and so, for a big amount. Mm -hmm. I think it was six times. And that Paymetric is cybersecurity? Well, they do... I think so. Um, they provide payments, acceptance, and data security. Okay. They sold it for $525 million. And Francisco Partners scored a more than six times return on the sale. What about what about the firms themselves? Are th are they concerned about being hacked? Do you ever hear concerns like that from firms? You know, that's a different story. We have tried to cover that, um, and they are taking a lot of measures to protect their own data. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you've seen ours. We ourselves, I mean, we're a portfolio company or part of a portfolio company, so we're always taking measures to protect our data. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've actually never seen it this intense. And, and it's and it somewhat, uh, some of these measures, uh, you know, as we know well, uh, can affect productivity in a negative way. Oh, very much so. Um, and so I think that, you know, at least just speaking from personal experience at a portfolio company, um, there definitely needs to be a balance struck between security and efficiency. And, um, you know, I think it's, it, it must be tough. It's tough here. It must be tough everywhere to, to achieve that balance between having, like, overwhelming security but making sure you're not having to go through three or four or five steps to, I don't know, post a story. Or to you get know. that link. <laughs> Click on a link. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's every day. <laughs> to, to all you wire readers out there. <laughs> yeah, no, my favorite thing is the Mimecast. So we have a system yeah. at the company that... It's called the Mimecast, which just sounds, you know, <laughs> just vague enough. All of these emails get sent to Mimecast if, before they go to your inbox. And a lot of times I get an email. It's like, do you want to open this link? Do you know <laughs> whether or not this is safe? And I'm like, yes, I know this is safe. It's coming from so-and-so. And then I get a note immediately after that says, congratulations, this link was safe. <laughs> it's like, thank you, robot. Thank you. <laughs> well, it holds my, my emails captive. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So. 
Well, what about, um, so cybersecurity then is the big story in fintech. What about some other uh, strategies within fintech? What, what, else, what else are you seeing out there that uh, GPs are chasing? InsureTech. So InsureTech, what is that? InsureTech is basically companies, insurance companies using technology. And so we've seen a lot of big companies in insurance called, that are in InsureTech. It's been around for a while. Various people define it differently. The one, the those companies that are getting like VC backed are the you know the B two C players that are look, looking to disrupt like traditional insurers mm-hmm. like Lemonade, and so Lemonade huge deal. I think it was late last year. Um, they got some very big backers. Anyways, I'm hearing companies like that are just too early for private equity, but there's a bunch of other companies in insure tech that um, that are getting funding. Well, just sort of at a basic level, what, what do they do that the sort of old traditional, you know, giant insurance companies aren't doing? What, what are they trying to solve, these newer? Well, they're trying to, like, cut fees and make it quicker for consumers, and okay. they're using bots and AI, <laughs> and so it's very high tech and, you know, needs a lot of funding and leads a lot of funding, and so it's a lot of these companies that are doing that, um, they're getting a lot of funding from VCs. Okay, so it's a VC play. It's a VC play right now. But it's but it's something that's going to mature into the PE universe. Yeah, PE is watching it. Got it. Got it. Interesting. Do you have any like kind of data in terms of the like just deal volume that you've seen in either InsureTech or in FinTech? Uh, no, in cybersecurity or InsureTech. Uh, cyber. Let me see. We had 2.4 billion was invested in 10 companies in Q1. That was actually down a bit from last year's Q1 when we had 11 companies get 2.9 billion. Hmm. But same so, ballpark. Yeah. Same ballpark, you know. So 10 companies now, 11 companies then. So okay. So it just continues to be a sector of um, great interest for private equity. Interesting. What about, uh, it, you know, when, when we're talking about fintech, I, I often hear you talking about payments. Is that still a popular? Very, very <laughs> popular for private equity. and. Cybersecurity for payments, you know, like tech firms that are looking to secure payments, big sector for mm. private equity. But it's payments, mm-hmm. so which is very hot right now. Got it. Interesting. All right. Don't you guys want to talk about blockchain? Everybody wants to talk about blockchain. <laughs> blockchain everything. <laughs> no, that's, that's my cue to leave the room usually. <laughs> Does anybody understand blockchain? Yeah, there are people who understand blockchain. I'm just not one of them. That's the awkward conversation no parent wants to have with their child. (laughs) I saw that somewhere. I forget where. Yeah, what about blockchain? uh, Has it become something that private equity can actively invest in at this point, or is it not sort of integrated yet? It's too early. Private equity is watching it. Uh, It's a great technology. People are trying to use it, but nobody's been able to yet for private equity. There's a lot of VC firms that are investing, but private equity has not. And to be clear, <clears throat> private equity has no interest in sort of crypto trading. Right. They pretty much view it as gambling. Yeah. So, But they are stage. watching it. You yeah. know, the, the crypto exchanges, they're watching that because, you know, private equity has done a lot in exchanges. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, one day, there's going to be a crypto exchange that's going to work on all the regulatory issues, and it's going to be a phenomenal success. Got it. Well, I saw earlier this week, Anderson Horowitz was lobbying. They had, like, brought together a bunch of VCs. They were lobbying Congress 
to make sure that certain coin offerings are not uh, counted as securities, which means that they would basically remain unregulated. Um, or that they no longer are considered, they were basically asking that they no longer be considered securities after the coins are no longer manageable by the by the founder, by the basically the person who created that specific coin. Um, and I feel like that's going to be a, a headache that the SEC will have to deal with for forever because no one's ever going to be fully happy with that result, I don't think. Hmm. Yeah. That's beyond my understanding at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, we'll take a pause here and then uh, come back in a bit where uh, Chris and I will be talking some more about uh, other goings-on in the private equity universe. Hello, everyone. Sam here. Just want to remind you again to sign up for Family Office Connect East 2018. It's on May 31st at the Harvard Club in New York City. Family offices are an increasingly important part of the private equity landscape. More and more firms are relying on them to raise money and uh, are often using them to source and structure their deals as well. So if you want to learn more about this space uh, and get a chance to network with some of the best family offices in the business, definitely sign up at PartnerConnectEvents.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. Uh, Our next segment is going to be uh, something that we've been talking about quite a bit over the last few months, and that's uh, the question of general partners holding on for investments, holding on to their investments, for longer periods of time. The typical private equity fund is what, 10 years, 12 years? Some, usually 15 years, really, yeah. there's extensions. But um, at the end of that time, they have to you know, have sold off pretty much everything that's in their portfolio. And a lot of GPs now don't want to do that. Uh, Chris, this is something you've been obviously on top of for a while. What's, uh, what are some recent developments in the, in the longer term uh, investment world. Yeah, and you know we love to, uh, <coughs> at least I love to try to pick up on trends and, and, and establish some themes for mm-hmm. my reporting each year. Mm-hmm. And every year so far, you know, since I've been doing this, seems to come up with uh, new themes. And so one of the themes that we're following this year is <coughs> this idea that GPs want to be able to hold certain investments longer than sort of the traditional hold period. That traditional hold period might be like three to five years. Yeah, um, and can I interrupt yeah. for a second? Because it, it seemed like that was a trendy year or two ago, right? With Blackstone and Carlisle and CBC launching these funds that were 15-year minimum, and then but really like 20, 25 years probably. Yeah. Uh, and now it's it's gone beyond just those big cap firms, right? Yeah, well, it's it's gone beyond those those bulge bracket firms, but it's also it's also evolved from sort of a just longer lived fund. Yeah. Which is a which is a fairly simple idea. You yeah. just have a fund that has a, has a twenty year mm-hmm. life on it. Yeah. Um, or you raise a permanent capital fund that every few years goes back into the market. It's an yeah. evergreen fund. Yeah. Type structure. Now we're we're seeing uh, some creative ways that GPs can sort of isolate certain investments out of a traditional PE portfolio, mm-hmm. and hold them for longer. And so <clears throat> what I wrote about recently was a firm called Atlas Holdings, which is sort of a uh, special situations turnaround type investor that just closed its um, third fund on one, about $1.7 billion. Yeah. And um, interesting here with this fund three, it has, it has a traditional private equity structure, but it has a provision in it where the GP can pull out a certain portfolio company and put it in a special purpose vehicle, which has an indeterminate or, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, undefined hold period. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to, it, it does that by getting LP approval. Mm-hmm. And what's really creative in, in my mind is that 
This then allows the LPs in Fund 3 to decide to either cash out of their exposure to that particular investment or roll into the SPV with the GP for the longer hold period mm-hmm. on that specific investment. Yeah. So we're talking, we're talking, you know, investment by investment hold periods here rather than whole fund mm-hmm. decisions being made. And, um, you know, it's that type of granularity that I think is really interesting in, 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 in this particular story, but also um, I've seen other instances, other types of um, restructuring deals that have only targeted single assets um, and trying to pull single assets out of bigger funds um, to give them long, longer hold periods. So it's really like, G- G- now, you know, when you talk to people, you, there's a couple factors you, you hear that, well, GPs are responding to LP demand because yeah. some, some LPs want to be longer term investors mm-hmm. and they want to be able to ride the value of, a, of an investment up and not just have to exit it within five years, yeah. even though there's more value to be to be claimed on that. You know, so some people say, well, that's based on LP demand. Yeah. Others will say, well, no, it's really the GP. You know, the GP is trying to build in more flexibility to be able to hold investments longer. That is the common complaint with GPs for a long time is that they are somewhat limited by the by the traditional PE structure and that they really do have to start thinking about exit, you know, within four or five years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's certain companies where you may just be getting started with your value creation at year five. Yeah. <clears throat> so I see that. But I also think that that tells us a lot about how private equity managers are compensated. What do you mean? So uh, a lot of, if you talk to GPs, a lot of them will tell you, especially like the big GPs who get their names in the press all the time, they'll tell you, well, really, we make our money on the back end. We make our money on the carry. Yeah. Um, It seems to me if they're structuring their vehicles to hold on to investments for 10, 15 years, how are they, you know, they're obviously eating in those 10 to 15 years and they're not eating poorly in those 10 to 15 years. So I, I don't know. It seems to me like this is a, a way for firms to maximize uh, fee revenues as well. Could be. And, and, and I, I think that I think that that is definitely a, val- a valid argument, especially yeah. when you're talking about maybe like a, uh, a fund with like a 20-year term or something like yeah. that. I mean, you're talking about paying fees for a long, long time. But even these individual structures, too, like even individual well, deal structures, too. So there, there's the question. I, I don't know. I don't have enough of an yeah. inside view to know what those economics look like. Yeah. You know, does this mean like, like when this GP pulls, you know, company X out of fund three and puts it in an SPV, what do those economics look yeah. like? I'm not entirely sure. Mm-hmm. Like what that fee stream looks like. Is there, you know, how, how is carry attached to that? I don't yeah. exactly know how that calculation I- is set. So, um, you know, in that sense, I don't, I don't have enough of you to, to sort of have an opinion on that. Got it. But cer- certainly, and, and I've, I've often heard from, from LPs that this, trend of the permanent capital funds and the longer lived funds is just another way for GPs to 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 build revenue to build revenue streams I mean I've heard that sort of you know skeptical view you might even say cynical view of the industry of, as a whole um, that you know this is really just another fee grab yeah and you know I mean certainly GPs are doing a great job marketing you know their justification for it yeah you of know? course <laughs> and now's the time to do it too I mean you can definitely it's not like the investors have other options definitely and, and that's the thing you, you, 
as with as with anything in this in this industry, I hear LPs complain about it, and then they commit. Yeah. You know, they commit capital to the strategy. Yeah, because they don't have a. It, it's an. It's a lot of. They're taking the best of bad op. Yeah, what's the phrase? Best of bad options. Maybe that's that concussion flare. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like they're they're taking the best of several bad options. It seems like, or not great options. I wouldn't say it's a bad option to be in a decent company for longer, but. I don't know. I, I take a more cynical view of it. I have a, another follow-up question for you about the. You mentioned that you know, as this gets more granular, you're starting to see uh, more and more individual companies get structured into these SPVs. Um, do you see that? Uh, I don't know, uh, affecting the identity of private equity moving forward because this is really breaking the mold from what the industry has been known for for the last forty years. Yeah, and I don't yet no? okay. um, because I really don't think it's going to be be that widespread. Mm-hmm. I think that it's I, – I kind of agree with the LPs I talked to that said it's something that we're seeing at this moment in time. It's a snapshot of this moment, of this era, yeah. of this fundraising market, of this, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, low interest rate environment. And it's a strategy that is of its time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this is something that that continues, you know, through the next recession. Yeah. Let's say. Um, so I don't think yet, at least yet, that this is changing the identity of P. I just think that this is another way that GPs are being creative. You know, uh, t- another way for them to make money. Another <laughs> I was way. Say, creatively making money. Sure. That's what, yeah. Well, that's what that's yeah. what that's what they do. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, and you know, and also another way to make their LPs money, really. Uh, they're you know they're offering yep, another true. another uh, another channel for LPs to to tap into. So yeah, so we we will continue to watch it. Uh, the, interestingly enough, this this Atlas Fund Fund Three was you know written up when it closed. This was a couple weeks ago, and um, n- nothing was said about this sort of long-term hold provision. Mm-hmm. And then I had just ha- happened to be talking to an LP who was like, "Yeah, there's a pretty interesting thing going on there where, uh, you know, I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but they're going to be able to pull companies out of there and put them in SPVs for longer." Uh, really? And so it wasn't like they were being um, upfront with upfront with it with, with or at public, least publicly. Yeah, yeah publicly. Yeah, sorry. And that makes it sound like it was nefarious. It was, which I thought was, I guess, interesting or weird. I don't know. I mean, I, I really so, sometimes to me, I feel like everything I think is really interesting news. These little, you know, in the weeds, nuts and bolts thing that our audience really likes. Mm-hmm. I think that everybody should think that way, and, and a lot of times, you know. They don't, because why? <laughs> why would they? <laughs> All right. Well, in our next segment, we'll talk about your uh, <laughs> your existential crisis <laughs> of writing about things that most people don't find interesting. <laughs> that's that's tough, man. Hey, as long as long as it's interesting to our audience. Yeah, as long as, as long as as long as that's the case, it'll pay the bills. <laughs> um, on that note, I think we're gonna wrap up. Is that okay? Yeah. Sound good to you? Anything that I haven't asked that I should ask? Um. I think that's about it. That's I think fine. that's about it. If you, uh, as always, if if you guys out there, if you have tips for us and gossip feedback, scotch, scotch recommendations, book recommendations, painkiller recommendations, <laughs> um, hit us up. You know. Yeah, let, let us know. And uh, as always, please check out our um, the stuff that we publish at pehub.com and uh, sign up for our events. And there are plenty of them at partnerconnectevents.com. See you next time. Have a good one.